Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein, a nurse, a midwife, a New York Times USA Today best-selling author. No, this doesn't describe three creative women, rather just one. And she happens to be my guest today. Patricia Harmon's life choices have been interesting, to say the least. Briefly, in the 60s and 70s, she and her husband traveled around the U.S. deciding where they wanted to live, often their means of transportation, hitchhiking. Then in 1974, along with a group of like-minded friends, they pulled their money and bought a farm in Rowan County, West Virginia. It was there, more or less by accident, that Patricia attended her first home birth. That led her to Austin, Texas, where she trained with a collective of home birth midwives. When she came back home, she became an RN, the first step in getting certified as a nurse midwife. It's a career that has lasted more than 30 years. And for 20 of those years, she's been on the faculty of Ohio State University, Case Western Reserve, and West Virginia University. In 1998, she and her husband and OBGYN opened a private practice in Morgantown, West Virginia. But in 2003, thanks to skyrocketing liability costs, the couple, who have three grown sons, decided to give up their practice— And I suppose you could say that's when Patricia reinvented herself. She began writing, and she hasn't stopped. There's her first memoir, The Blue Cotton Gown. Also, her contemporary fiction includes The Midwife of Hope River, The Runaway Midwife, Lost on Hope Island, The Amazing Tale of the Little Goat Midwives, that's a children's book, and her most recent novel, Once a Midwife. I think this is enough of an introduction. Let's meet and get to know Patricia Harmon. So welcome, and thanks so much for joining me today. Well, it's a great pleasure, and it's interesting to hear my life described like that, because it sounds like, gee, that must be somebody else, but that was me. I get that a lot from my guests. You know, it's a whole other ballgame when you're forced to hear how terrific you are or how interesting you are and what you've accomplished. So, Patricia, let's go back. You were a hippie, huh? Oh, definitely, and and it's funny. If you saw me now, you know, I have short graying hair, and um, I don't wear much makeup. I'm kind of a plain person, kind of jolly you know, kind of person that you'd like for your midwife, probably. But, you know, especially my younger patients, when they read my books, they'll be like, Mrs. Harmon, you were a hippie because I'm not their image. You know, and of course, in those days, I did have long hair and wore long skirts and, you know, probably a fringe jacket and all that kind of stuff. But now I just look so straight. You know, it's hard to believe that I did all that stuff. Where did you grow up? I grew up on the West Coast um, near the Bay Area. And then... um, When my parents divorced, we moved to Nevada, which was where my mother had grown up and had a large family. So definitely West Coast, um, San Francisco, uh, Oakland, Berkeley, and then a little bit in Nevada before I went to college, which was in Portland. What drove you to go cross country? Well, I I think we, and I would say I, mostly, it was just very idealistic and kind of looking for utopia. We were into community and we were into nonviolent action, uh, protesting the war in Vietnam. And I just kept looking for the perfect group. And of course, now that I'm much older, I I know that, you know, there is no perfect group, but just kept looking for a harmonious situation that we would stay with. And eventually we did move down to West Virginia and we were on the commune there for probably uh, 10 years or so until my husband and I both decided to go back to school and he became a physician and I became a nurse midwife. Did you meet him when you were in college? No, no. Long after that, uh, in, in some of my hopping around some different communes. 
And so you and he were so like-minded that you decided that you were going to hit the road together. Uh, That's pretty much true. We were very like-minded in terms of our ideals. I think personality-wise, we're real different. You know, I'm kind of the uh, emotional one, and he's kind of the stable, like, you know, it's going to be okay, everything's fine. Uh, Well, I'm kind of dramatic. Drama notwithstanding, you bought a farm in West Virginia, and then you were going to what? You know, it's interesting because in those days, um, we were looking at the the earth and the problems uh, that the environment was having. having. And, um, you know, what we saw was, you know, pollution, limited resources in terms of natural resources. Eagles were dying of DDT, things like that. And we wanted to go back to the land uh, and grow our own food and grow it organically. We built our own log cabins. It was really back to the land. But what's interesting about that is there's a, a turn toward that again, I think. People trying to eat more healthy. Uh, some of the younger people trying to find a way to live sustainably. Um, and all those kind of things are turning around. But, of course, we knew nothing about climate change or global warming or any of that stuff. Uh, we were looking at limited challenges so it, it's just kind of interesting to me, and, and it's especially funny because our son, who's the organic farmer, um, you know, actually, I honestly think he thinks he invented some of these ideas. <laughs> but we were doing it, you know, 30 or 35 years ago. Did you find your utopia by living on this farm? Um, there are many beautiful things about it. Um, one of the things I remember the most is the music. Not everyone was a musician, but we sang all the time. We sang when we worked. We sang when we rested. That was a beautiful thing. The things that I didn't like, I didn't mind the hard work, um, and I probably physically was in great shape, but it was there were so many meetings because we tried to do things by consensus, And now I think we were just over the top with that. It would have been better to have individuals make their own decisions. I'll give you an example. Uh, I remember a meeting where we pooled all our money and there was a big issue about whether someone could buy their own shampoo. And I washed my hair every day and I wanted, you know, oil of Olay shampoo or whatever that I liked. I forget what kind, but that was a big issue. And, you know, probably everybody else thought we should use lye soap or something like that. And th- those are the kind of things that just were too exhausting. Um, and there are other models of uh, intentional communities. And I think a lot of people have figured that out, that a way to do things that gives you more personal choice, but still gives you the, the power of community. So at some point for you, the allure wore off. I've thought a lot about this. And in my second memoir, Arms Wide Open, I write about this. It wasn't so much that we got exhausted from the process, but the war in Vietnam ended. And I think a lot of our reason for community was solidarity. You know, looking back, you see uh, things on uh, PBS or something about the war in Vietnam. And I don't think it conveys how different we were at that time from the general public to uh, oppose war. We were seen as unpatriotic. People would yell at us, go back to Russia and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think when when the war ended, people began to drift off and go back to school. A lot of us had dropped out of college and to look around and see how else can we be of service to this to this nation. And that's when uh, the commune kind of slowly broke up. It wasn't like one big deal, like everyone said, we're out of here or something like that. Was it at that point, around that time, 
when you attended your first home birth? I was teaching childbirth classes. Um, things were very behind in West Virginia, as they were in most of the Midwest. Uh, fathers were not allowed in the delivery room. Babies were taken right away to the nursery. The mother never got to hold them. Women were basically strapped down, and the babies were kind of pulled out of you. So people on the West Coast and the East Coast were starting to say, wait a second, that's not the way I want to have my baby. So I had taken child Lamaze classes and I began to teach them in West Virginia. But the other hippies that were coming into the area because land was cheap and beautiful, they wanted to have their baby in a more gentle way. And uh, the first birth I went to was at another commune and the woman went into labor um, the night there was a snowstorm. And being the only person who had ever seen babies born, I ended up delivering the baby. And I guess that's when I got hooked. Were you a mom at that time? I had one baby, yeah. One child, four years old. Okay, so you knew what was going on based on yeah. your own experience. Right, and going to the classes. And I, since then, I had seen maybe a couple of other people have babies in the hospital. And so that set something off in you, that maybe you would like to pursue this as a career. Yeah, and I, I think how we thought of it that in those days, and I still think of it a little bit this way, is to serve the people. And I think since people were going to have their babies at home, it was better to have someone like me who had seen three or four babies and studied some books than to have no one. Looking back, though, you have to say, you know, where did she uh, get the courage to do this? Absolutely. And that never unnerved you in the sense of like, oh, my God, what have I gotten myself into? No, I'll tell you why. We were learning everything. We were, none of us were rural kids. You know, we were in our 20s. And, you know, we would get a book and we would find out how to plant an apple orchard or how to grow corn or how to build a log cabin. So I guess in our own heads, how we thought about it was that birth is a natural process. Um, let's read a book about it <laughs> and then we can go do it. And I think that's that's how we how we face these things. And one other thing, you know, home birth is considered safe, even to this day, research shows that, but only with the low risk patient. And think about the women that I was helping. These people were eating all organic food that they grew themselves. They were physically very strong. Right. They pull logs out of the woods and they believed they could do it. And I think those three things made us have a C-section rate of 1%. And you may know that the C-section rate in this country now is one out of three. And it really, it was partly maybe my talent at getting babies out. But I think a lot of it was just the kinds of patients that I was helping. Wow. How empowering that must have been for you and for the new mom. I think that's true, and I think birth can be transformative for people. And one of the problems in our over-medicalized vision of birth, that we're, the way we do it now, is we take the power away from the women and give it to the doctor. Well, that's interesting saying that, considering who you're married to. Yes, and I'm lucky because we actually had two of our babies at home. So how nice to have a midwife and a doctor team that basically, even if you had your baby in the hospital, but you wanted to have it more naturally, you would know we would be supportive. And the great thing about Tom was if I needed him to come in for a problem, he would never run in like, oh, thank God you called me. You've really messed up now. He would just kind of wander in and he would say, so having kind of a hard time. How can I help? And, and that was a really nice thing, you know, to have that team. 
That's what was disappointing about having to quit, I think. Maybe we were just ready, but I think, you know, after being in practice together for 30 years, uh, we were pretty good at it. And this was all in West Virginia? Uh, Pretty much, yeah. We we worked a little bit together at Case Western Reserve in Cleveland, uh, where he did his residency. But after that, we were in West Virginia. And that was basically your base of operations, so to speak. Yeah, we've been here a long time now. We're not natives, but, you know, two of our kids were born here. And um, I, I really love the state. It's fantastically beautiful. It's very conservative. And sometimes, I'll be honest, we think of moving to Vermont. That's also beautiful <laughs> and probably looks about the same as West Virginia. But a lot colder, <laughs> I'm sure, right? <laughs> Perhaps a little, but, you know, with climate change, we don't know anymore. That's a good um, point. That's a good <laughs> point. How many babies would you say you've delivered by yourself, and then with your husband, Tom? I would say about a 1,000, but that's just rounding it off. A 1,000 babies. And so when you came back from Austin, Texas, and you became an RN, you left the commune? You left the farm in Rowan County? I was able to study in Rowan County or close there, but I um, went to graduate school at the University of Minnesota. And then I think Tom started medical school, and we moved to Ohio. So you've really been a lot of places, haven't you? I have. Would you say that wanderlust was also a part of your DNA? No, I think I'm really more of a homebody. It was just the idealism. And then having to go back to school, there were no programs in West Virginia for nurse midwives. So I kind of had to move for that. Um, I I don't think I really am uh, a traveler. I think I just was looking for something. Well, clearly you found it. So let's jump ahead to 2003, when, as I mentioned, you and your husband decided it was time to uh, close up shop. Is that when you began to reinvent yourself, or was this writing seed already planted in your brain? You know, I had always written journals and maybe poetry in the middle of the night, probably not very good poetry, but there'd be one amazing line. And I used to uh, play guitar and write songs. So I'd always been kind of a writer. But when we talk about closing shop, what we did really was gave up obstetrics. So we still did women's health. And that year, I began to have a little more time to listen to the women's stories And I was going through menopause, which some of your listeners will relate to, and could not sleep very well. So I would get up, and I would write down the stories the women told me that day. And it became a book, and that is The Blue Cotton Gown. So that's how I began writing. And then someone said something to me about a home birth story in in The Blue Cotton Gown. And I thought, huh, well, that could be another book. And then I started writing Arms Wide Open. After that, I thought, hmm, I think I could write a novel. So (laughs) I started writing historical fiction, and after that, one contemporary fiction, and then the kids' books. So I have a new book coming out, Once a Midwife. Talk to me about the memoir, The Blue Cotton Gown. What Share some of the stories that wound up making it in your book. I remember uh, a woman who uh, was fairly well-to-do, whose daughter had terrible bulimia, and was in the intensive care unit. And the woman confided to me that they'd had to mortgage their house in order to pay for her treatment because insurance would not cover any more of it. She'd already used up all her benefits. I remember there was a teenager uh, pregnant with twins, 
and uh, she was a country girl and her boyfriend was involved in drugs. Uh, there was a college professor who uh, wanted to become a man. And this was, you know, over 10 years ago. Now we hear about these kind of things a lot, but um, that was something new for us and whether it was okay to help them or were we playing God here? So it, that's quite a variety, isn't it? And I tried to pick out after I had all these stories and realized it could be a book because it was beginning to read like a novel. Um, I tried to pick out people that were representative of the practice. In Morgantown, which is a university town, uh, we have everything from the college professor to the the wife of a rich mining company to very simple people uh, who drive into Morgantown for their medical care, uh, country people. So I tried to pick out a variety of, of uh, women that would represent uh, the kind of people that we took care of. Was it difficult for you to get a publisher? Yes, it was. And when I speak, I tell people that I got 73 rejections. Uh, you, when you're looking for an agent, you have to write a query letter. So I sent these out and 10 years ago, they still sent you postcards. I understand they don't even recognize you if they don't want your your book. They just don't even respond. But at that time, I kept the postcards and I kept them in a big envelope that said, too bad for you, sucker. <laughs> <laughs> and it had a cartoon face on it. Um, and then one day, I got calls from two agents. And that was amazing because I just wanted one. And I picked the one from New York City. After that, it was maybe a couple of months before I got my first book contract. So I tell people who are interested in writing not to give up. You know, um, some I have friends, you know, who've been rejected. And I'll say, well, how many times? And they'll go, oh, four. <laughs> and I go, oh, no. Yeah, talk to me. Yeah, really, don't complain to me. But what sparked Arms Wide Open? Was it more that you still had more stories to tell? You know, I kept journals, remember, all those years. I began to wonder, how did I get here, looking around at my lifestyle, um, married to a doctor, living on the edge of a little mountain lake. And I thought, how did I get here? Where did I come from? And that's when I started writing that book. And, and it's all based on uh, things that I could see in my journal from way back. Was it just ever too intense for you, or this was something while you were being a midwife, that you felt you had met your calling? Um, it was never too intense, but I prayed a lot. And there's one story in the arms wide open about going to someone's house and just the strangeness of it. I had not made a home visit. They were having their baby in a neighbor's house, an old fellow who looked like one of those guys from ZZ Tops with <laughs> a long gray beard, and just very strange. And when I did an examination, even though I had seen the patient a week before and the baby was head down, it was now butt down. But before she got to pushing, I did go outside and, and hug a tree <laughs> and ask for the great spirit to guide me through this. Oh my and God. The baby was just fine. But uh, yeah, there have probably been a few experiences where I was uh, saying my prayers, but all went well. I was working with pretty tough women, you know, people who weren't too scared and weren't about to back out on me and, you know, end up delivering a breach in the car. Actually, I thought of it. I thought, man, we should get out of here. But, you know, it was 30 minutes to a hospital and I didn't want to deliver my first breach in a dark car. I can't imagine, you know, having thought back then, um, I'm going to have my babies at home. Well, remember, we were doing everything at home. You know, we were digging our latrines at home. We were like planting our apple trees at home. Um, 
it was it was different for us. But if people are able to have a nice, you know, empowering birth experience in the hospital, especially nowadays they have birthing centers and places like that. Uh, I don't think it's necessary to have your baby at home. You know, if you find a midwife or a physician, very few physicians would come to your house. But there are birthing centers. If you find somebody that aligns with your vision of how you want to have a baby um, and doesn't take your power away, you know, is respectful and gentle, I think that that's fine. You know, my kids might want to have their babies at home, but two of them have already had babies in the hospital and things went well. I became good friends with my OBGYN, a woman, and maybe within the last five years or so, she gave up the OB part because of malpractice insurance, and and that that brought her such joy, and it's such a shame. I want to move into your fiction writing. So what were the catalysts for some of your books, The Midwife of Hope River, The Runaway Midwife, and your newest one, Once a Midwife? Well, after writing the two memoirs, I thought, hmm, I think I could write a novel. And it was, uh, I think I started the Hope River series in about 2008, right when our country was going through what we call now the Great Recession. Right. I thought, hmm, I could write about a midwife who lived in the 30s during the Great Depression. I think people would relate to this. And I could make her live on the land because I've actually done that and have her be kind of an idealist, although the issues then would have been different, more like, you know, working for the unions or something like that or uh, women's rights, getting the vote for women. So I made up a character and I began to write about her. And uh, when I write, and I think it's about 50-50 from other authors I've talked to, I don't have an outline. I just start with the premise. Okay, there's my premise. It's 1929. The Great Depression has just started. This woman is stuck on a farm. She's hiding out from something. We don't know what. So there's my beginning of my book. And after the the Midwife of Hope River was published, I thought, I don't want to leave these characters. I've built a whole community of people in this little town of Liberty, West Virginia. I want to find out more about them. So then I wrote the second book, which is The Reluctant Midwife, about an RN who gets stuck in the role of midwife, and it involves a lot of the same characters. She says, Becky says, she would rather set a broken arm, deal with a ragged wound, or assist at a hysterectomy before she'd deliver a baby. Wow. But, of course, by the end of the book, um, she becomes a midwife, too. And then the third one is Once a Midwife. It's set 1941, just before Pearl Harbor. And it it involves a community on the home front trying to assist with a war against basically a great tyrant, Hitler. But it turns out that our midwife in the first book, Patience, husband, is a conscientious objector. And this is very hard for patients. She cannot believe that her husband would not go and fight. In fact, will not cooperate at all with the draft board. So that's the premise of that book and how they work that out. And I think what what ties them all together is is the idea of hope. And then after a while, I was going through some personal crises and I thought, hmm, I'm going to diverge here and write about a woman who wants to run away from her life. And I put this on Facebook. I said, has anybody ever thought of running away? And like within a half an hour, I had 83 likes or something saying, yes, 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 yes. And one person said, and I did. So I I wrote a book about a woman who runs to Canada and she happens to be a midwife, but she could have easily been, 
you know, a teacher, an accountant, uh, anybody that's uh, gone through a lot of stress and just wants to reinvent themselves, not wants to die, just wants to be somebody else and be somewhere else. Talk about the amazing tale of the little goat midwives. What a great title. Well, I have grandkids and I always tell them stories. And then I thought, oh, I could write a book, I guess, for my grandchildren. Uh, What I like about those kids' books, they're chapter books for kids, I would say, 6 to 14. Um, The protagonists are a boy who's 7 and a girl who's 13 who are shipwrecked, basically, on an island. They lose their parents in a boating accident off the coast of Mexico. As it turns out, they are from West Virginia, so I have these ties back to my other books, and their mother was a midwife. So on the island, they discover an abandoned log, or rather stone cabin, and it basically saves their lives. It's shelter, and the the, uh, island is inhabited by wild goats. And there really are such places as this off the coast of Baja, Mexico. So that's their survival tale. And I tell people it's kind of like Little House on the Prairie without Ma and Pa. So these kids are learning to melt goats. They have to several times. Most goats can just go off and have their babies, but in complicated cases, they're able to save some goats' lives. After I wrote the first one, I thought, oh, wait a second, there's more here. (laughs) These kids have to be rescued. (laughs) So I wrote the second one, and people are still emailing me saying, where can I get the third book? I'm like, "Uh, it's in my head. (laughs) I have to finish the novel I'm working on now, and then I'll go back to the kids' books. You know, Patricia, I say this fairly frequently to my guests, you know, and I don't want it to seem like I'm gushing, but I'm just so taken with the women I've met through this podcast and their belief in themselves and their desire, their need, their ability to get out there and do what it is they need to do because those things are bigger than they are. And that seems to apply to you on so many levels. Don't you think people take themselves for granted? Like when someone says that, you go, huh, yeah, I guess that's true. I do seem to have confidence to to do a lot of different things. Um, And I think about that raising children, you know, are we raising kids that have confidence and believe in themselves? And, and I hope we are, you know, there's a lot of talk about that, you know, empowering your children and how free to let them be and how supervised should we let them be. And there's just a lot of conversation about that, but I hope we're raising kids that, like I said, believe in themselves. Well, also, as you talked about your past, where you've lived and what you've done, there was this incredible openness to explore and to try new things. And that, I think, no pun intended, speaks volumes. And I think you're right. That's true. We uh, lived at a time where people were uh, daring, basically. So what else do you have up your sleeve as we wind down this conversation? What's next from and for Patricia Harmon? Well, I'm involved in a new novel. Um, It's another Hope River novel, but it's a prequel and goes back to the days of an African-American midwife in West Virginia, Mrs. Potts, who I realized in the first book, she was 80 and it was 1930, 80-something. She had been born a slave. And then I started thinking, how did Mrs. Potts get here? How did she get free? Was it just the Civil War or did she escape? So it's been a lot of fun. And all my books, my historical fiction books, uh, involve a lot of research on every page, really. So that's been a good learning experience. 
So the book goes back and forth between patients. Our current midwife, it's now 1956, and the civil rights movement is starting. So it goes back and forth between Mrs. Potts' life and escape to Canada and what's going on in West Virginia in, ter- in terms of um, integration and that kind of thing. Did you ever entertain the idea of having your books become movies? Yes. And I people, you know, there's the series called The Midwife, which has been extremely popular. I think these books could be the American version of Call the Midwife. But I actually see it more as a TV series because a lot of the stories are sequential. Um, so you could, you know, easily have a, you know, an episode about something that happened and then another one. Um, but have the, the character growth go through the whole series. So yes, I'm waiting for a call if you know anyone. (laughs) I'll put the word out for you, Patricia. I so enjoyed getting to know you and have a conversation with you. You're a very special, very special woman. And I wish you continued success. And it was just, again, so my pleasure to meet and get to know you. Well, it was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.